I've just seen Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker and nothing prepares you for this. I cheered, I shouted, I fist pumped the air, I cried, I stood and cheered. It's absolutely everything that you hoped it was going to be. I'm so, I'm so proud to be in it. And I can't wait for you to see it. It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love and some you don't. I'm your host, Gareth Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time Wookiee Man Love Association member, Andrew Raphael. Mmm, Wookiee. And this week we're venturing back to the world of Star Wars for part two of our The Rise of Skywalker special. But in our discussion, do we laugh it up like a pair of fuzzballs? Or like a Sith with diarrhea, do we find the hate <laughs> flowing through us? I can feel the diarrhea oozing from within. <laughs> you will now feel the full power <laughs> of this fully operational anus. <laughs> Oh, I think you'll find the air fresheners will be quite operational when your friends arrive. <laughs> Just spraying a bit of Glade. I can imagine him saying that as well. Find out after the trailer. What, uh, what are you doing there, 3PO? Taking one last look, sir, at my friends. Confronting fear is the destiny of a Jedi. Your destiny Okay, so picking up where we left off on our last episode, on that episode, I know that we had discussed some minor points in regards to the rise of Skywalker. We had really mainly discussed about the making of that film, and as you mentioned, it was more about the preamble as to the situation surrounding the rise of Skywalker, rather than the film itself. We did get into a few details, but not in as great depth as we would have wanted so we've we're going to make that the main bulk of our episode today really because i watched this film and i want to make it you know be worth something of my time (laughs) i don't want this time to have been for nothing because so far this episode i have i could have done without actually having seen the film again i mean the fact that we're having some technical difficulties earlier on this week and we may have had to record this part a few weeks later i was dreading having to watch the film again yeah that's not a good thing really is it the fact that i'm dreading to watch a star wars film yeah that is where i feel like at the moment like i feel like watching it would have been a waste of time 
the longer it settles with me, the more I dislike it. <laughs> the more I forget about it. <laughs> I, I, and definitely It's, it's that, not a yeah. memorable film at all in any way, shape or form. But it kind of reminds me of when we went to go see The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies. Yeah, yeah. Where up until that point, the first two Hobbit films, I kept on reasoning to myself and justifying to myself, well, the things that I don't like about those films they're going to be justified by this third film, whatever this film does. I'm sure it's all going to come together in a very (laughs) cohesive and exciting and entertaining and fulfilling way. And then when that didn't happen, I walked out of the cinema angry. (laughs) And with this as well, because it's not quite the same, because again, I had a much more positive experience with The Last Jedi. But I will say it's more so as well because of like films that were made outside of the main bulk as well, like your Rogue One and your Solo. The Last Jedi is really the only film that I truly appreciate out of the whole lot that they actually made. And I kept saying to myself, oh, Rise of Skywalker is the one that's great. This is where everything truly clicks. And then obviously they started making it and all of the horror stories started to slowly leak out. Then when I saw the film, I didn't even go through that phase that I have with, we talked about it with Attack of the Clones, where I tried to convince myself that I enjoyed it in any way, shape or form. I just kind of like accepted it. I just kind of accepted that it was very underwhelming. And I had tickets to go see it again. And I just didn't go to the cinema. I didn't even bother to ask anyone if they wanted to come. Like I I had two tickets. My wife suddenly couldn't make it. And I thought I could ask some of her friends. And instead of thought, no, I'm just not going to go. So in that cinema screen that was initially sold out, there were two, two empty seats that could have gone to a, uh, (laughs) that I deprived from a Star Wars fan. That won't go down too well, will it? Well, I don't think people will be asked with this one, to be honest. (laughs) But before we do really get into this, I want to ask as well, what positives do you have about this film? We've spoken about C-3PO as being a positive character as well. Like, I, I do think this this is the C-3PO film. He, yeah, he yeah. works in every scene that he is in. Yeah, so it's a great send-off for him. Yeah. The Maz Kanata puppet was cool. Yes, it was. Because I didn't realise it was a puppet. I just thought they'd uh, made the CG look a lot better. Like, really, like, a lot better. And then I discovered that it was actually a puppet and one of the most sophisticated puppets that's ever been made. And I was like, holy shit, that's great. Why didn't they use that more? <laughs> Why didn't they yes. actually have her be like an actual active participant in the action rather than exposition lady? Like a lot mm-hmm. of the characters seem to be in this film. Yeah, they introduced new characters to be exposition characters as yeah. well, to just be entirely expositional when they already have characters that fulfill that role. <laughs> we'll use the term character very loosely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are just mouthpieces for exposition. Yes. They're not characters. They were. I mean, this is a Chris Terrio film, so it's his kind of bread and butter. To be honest, with him, I'm like... He's obviously very good at writing adapted screenplays, but anything original, he's pretty darn poor. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a testament to how poor this film is, as not just a film, but a Star Wars film, when I can describe the best elements of the film being things like C-3PO and a character like Babu Freak. The reason that I entirely mentioned discussing the positives first is because I wanted to speak about Babu Freak. Yeah. Who is the shining star of this film. Actually <laughs> yeah. became something of a viral sensation after yeah. this film came out. Yeah. And rumour was that Disney wanted to cut Babu Freak from the film almost entirely. 
I will say, much as with Maz Kanata, who looks fantastic in this film, and is on the behind-the-scenes documentary as well, they do go into further depth about how complicated as well that animatronic was, and it looks fantastic. Mm. But Babu Frick as well, it's a character that's made up by fantastic special effects, but also I don't think it would be as good without Shirley Henderson. No. <laughs> I didn't realise it was until I looked it up and I was like, hey. Not only did she just like voice the character, but she actually puppeteered it as well. Yeah, yeah. She actually learned how to puppet the character and move its mouthpiece along with her as well so that she could provide it with some sort of semblance of a performance from herself mm, as yeah, well. Yeah. I thought there are some things that this film does on a technical point of view that it makes me, I mean, I obviously wish the whole rest of the film was so much better, but it makes me wish that it was all for something more. And they should just be icing on the cake. So, for example, mm. having C-3PA say uh, some funny lines and have good sort of participation in the film and, yeah, little characters like Babu Freak, but when they are the, the headline highlights of a film, you know that there's something wrong. Yeah. It's like saying that Salacious Crumb was the highlight of Return of the Jedi. <laughs> I mean, he is, but... Yeah, like Dexter Jetster. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, fuck no. Like, Attack of the Clones was entirely in, built on the back of Dexter Jetster. <laughs> like, oh. It was redeemed by his inclusion. I think that shot of George Lucas umming and ahhing <laughs> around these hundreds of maquettes for that particular character, whilst everyone stares around him absolutely scared, stiff, and him just going, hmm... Mm. that sums up the prequels that that is the prequels in a situation that is everything do you think it's strange as well that uh, one of the things i did want to mention as we have touched upon the prequels once more because all roads lead to the prequels oh, yeah. yeah i mean we've spoke about well at least those prequels had a vision as one mm. of the main points that we uh spoke about for the previous episodes like we don't like that vision particularly but how do you feel about this notion that's been born out of the sequel trilogy that the prequels weren't that bad in comparison. <laughs> How do you feel towards that? Because, I mean, I couldn't disagree more, but it is strange that that's coming around. I think it's a, uh, a case of rose-tinted spectacles because I think they're just talking about them in generalities when you actually get to the nitty-gritty of each film. There's a long list of issues. Yeah. I mean, there's issues with both trilogies, but they are very different to each other. I think that would be the, the best way to describe it. I think it's got very much lost in the um, conversations that people seem to be having, I'd say more and more over the last 10 years, where because we've got things like Rotten Tomatoes and the rise of, sort yeah. of YouTube and comment sections, this more black and white view of thinking where yeah. that trilogy shit this is actually not as bad and you know it's, it's like binary isn't it now it's like binary criticism yeah it's very binary way of looking at it. whereas both trilogies have have problems but they are completely different problems mm -hmm. and both films have merits but completely different types of merits yeah it's not really a fair comparison but yeah i would not describe the prequels as being good quality films because considering what they had to work with, they still ballsed it up rather royally. So mm -hmm. I, I would only defend those films to a certain extent. And I think anyone else doing so is is rather foolish, I would say. Because, yeah. um, you know, I keep seeing these videos where like, oh, it's, it's genius, actually. Like, if you read <laughs> this book, this book, this book. And I was like, no, 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 no. It has to stand on its own. It's a film. Yeah. I, I don't understand people trying to defend them either. It's like, why are you wasting your fucking time? Well, I get when it's like, 
when somebody approaches it from a very passionate point of view where they do feel very passionately about that particular vision and that they have bought into it in a way that I simply cannot. I do get that, but I don't get like trying to convince me to see otherwise or that type of thing. Cause yeah, yeah. I am very firm in my views of what those prequels are and where they have failed as well for me. And in many ways, though, I find myself in a rather complicated Star Wars conundrum when it comes to looking at the prequel trilogy and looking at the sequel trilogy because now I find myself asking the question of well with the sequel trilogy it has a film that I think is entertaining and a film that I think is great which is The Last Jedi for me personally even though people don't buy into that as well at the same time I recognize that as a whole when we take a step back and look at that trilogy and look at what Disney are doing with Star Wars in general now beyond the trilogy that actually is it enough to be entertaining but mediocre while the prequels are bad and i don't like them they still at least have a vision and some semblance of integrity when it comes to that vision i i like i feel like i'm seeing george lucas try to say something with those films even if i don't like them whatsoever i still feel like there's an integrity of vision there that you're not going to get or at least has been proven that you're not going to get with Disney by and large on their productions because how many times have they hired directors for their visions and then fired them mm. you know th this whole kind of revolving door of talent for people who have particular styles and particular ways of making things like I want to see other people's takes on Star Wars I want to see like I would have loved to have seen uh, Lord and Miller's take on Solo yeah yeah the moment that they were hired for that film I was like yes Lord and Miller Star Wars film don't care what it's about I want mm -hmm. to see it it seems that Disney aren't so much interested in that as just interested in trying to recapture the feeling of A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back. They're trying to capture, recapture nostalgia. And that, to me, might entertain me in like short term. But by and large, it's not what I'm interested in. And I would much rather take... I've always said this, though. I would much rather take a noble failure, a failure with a vision, even if I don't like it in any way, shape, or form. At least it tried something. And that's the situation I find myself in when looking at those two particular trilogies. Yeah. I think the other interesting thing that's happened outside as well in terms of like the real world is that in certain fan circles, George Lucas has gone from being a a villain, which he was before the sale yeah. of Lucasfilm, you know, very much maligned in some circles. And he's gone back to being a hero and some mm -hmm. sort of savior in, and a rebel. in other circles. Yeah. So I think in a way that's some, one of the most significant things that's happened especially like in the wake of Last Jedi and The Rise of Skywalker that and yeah the failure of Solo and and everything that yeah that this figure who was very much maligned it's almost like the Darth Vader story isn't it uh, <laughs> it really is oh my gosh yeah yeah oh it's um life imitating God once more i mean i don't know how much of it actually is justified and how much of you know whether people are just clinging on to something because this other thing is they feel is much worse. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, but it, yeah, it is a strange old set of affairs at Lucasfilm right now. And I genuinely don't know what is going to happen, to be honest. Yeah, that is one of the points I do want to speak about. When we start to discuss the stats and facts as well, the question is going to come up, what next for Star Wars? So I'm going to put a pin in that for the moment. But one thing that I want to say in regards to this George Lucas villainy is, to me... He still is a villain. And it's not so much the prequels, because I've made peace with that a long time ago. You know, I'm, I'm 33 years old. I'm not in for <laughs> holding grudges for yeah. franchises made for kids. But 
I'm still bitter that I still haven't got a new hope in its original form in that first trilogy in its original form on blu-ray because essentially and this sounds bad i don't think it's going to get released until george lucas passes this mortal coil i think that's what they're they're waiting for because he's essentially done with the original trilogy what he later went on to do with the holiday special Mm. which i think is to give it that same treatment is so disrespectful to the people that made those films they're not just George Lucas films. No. They're made by a lot of talent and a lot of people putting their time and effort into making these wonderful works of art. And for so long, we've been waiting for them to see the light of day in the best form that they can, especially with the home video market being in the way that it is at the moment, you know, Blu-ray and 4K. They can be appreciated from a home viewing. Why aren't we getting to see these films? And for me, he'll forever be the villain for that Uh, Not so much for the prequels themselves, but for that particular thing. And I think at the moment as well, because of people's change of heart, it does slightly annoy me that I I think his contribution to the overall aesthetic of the original trilogy is being overemphasized again by people. I I think people just think he is the creator and that's it. Yeah. And, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, a lot of the visual style of the film was hammered out by Ralph McQuarrie anyway. Yeah. And in terms of like, like Darth Vader was born out of a random picture he had drew. He had painted, in fact, of a character, well, the villain of the piece, Darth Vader, wearing a spacesuit, essentially. Mm. It was supposed to be for one scene of him entering through an airlock and he was wearing a spacesuit and that was it. And they fell in love with the design right there and then. It was like, that's it. That's what he has to wear throughout the entire film. Yeah. And just a lot of people saying no and mm-hmm. offering alternative suggestions other screenwriters being involved, lots of different editors. Mm-hmm. I mean, the list goes on and on and on as to why those first two especially are so good. And to lay it down at the feet of one person is um, rather strange, I would say, because everyone I've ever spoken to about it who was there, it always seemed to me that George was actually quite a little bit out of his depth mm-hmm. when it came to making the movies and actually relied on quite a few people to to get things through and was at loggerheads with certain people who knew how to do things and he wanted to do it in a different way but that work, that way didn't actually fucking work so it's yeah. like yeah it's kind of a strange thing and like if you really want to know like how good George Lucas is then yeah just watch the prequels because that's all him and I think I mentioned on a previous episode the decision that he made to bring in another director for the second film because he didn't like directing he didn't like the experience of directing and that's an inspired decision and to bring in Irvin Kershner because he was essentially afraid of him I think that's the best decision George Lucas has ever made I mentioned it on a previous episode but also looking at say for example that oh what's it called the uh, the, the dreams documentary oh Empire of Dreams yeah. Empire of Dreams yes watching that documentary which is on Amazon Prime for anybody in the UK in its entirety it's well worth watching you can even get a glimpse of that and especially with the way that he does deal with his actors as well because he's not somebody that one particularly writes well for characters um, in terms of the dialogue but also in terms of directing the actors he's not particularly very good at it and I know that they he had that one line that he just keeps hammering time after time after time but you do feel like on an actor basis they're kind of directing themselves in essence yeah, they're just uh, yeah. bringing their own charm to it and you get the same feeling with the prequels as well where people that well, they've been given no direction and because they've got nothing to work with either. Yeah. You know, it's doubly hard when you have situations when wonderful actors who are great in other films are absolute dog shit. Mm-hmm. Embarrassingly so. I don't get it. 
to be honest, I don't get how, especially after the first one came out, how they were able to continue in that way. Because to be uh-huh. perfectly honest, even though you made a few aesthetic changes, the way that the films were made and presented pretty much remained the same for the whole yeah. trilogy. And I don't understand why that happened. It really baffles me. It will always baffle me. Yeah, I think so. And <laughs> you know what? We found ourselves once more talking about the legacy of Star Wars rather than <laughs> Rise of Skywalker. The Rise of Skywalker itself, which I think that is kind of like emblematic of the issues with this film is mm. that it's a uh, very forgettable but also there are far more interesting things happening around this film as well than the film itself yeah i was mentioning the positives before i think babu frick and c3po are my favorite aspects of the film i want mm-hmm. to say as well that from a technical standpoint there's a lot of good work being done within um rise of skywalker as well one thing that i think doesn't work at all though that I actually think is kind of disrespectful to be included in this film yeah. is Carrie Fisher. <laughs> it's Leia. <laughs> Have you ever seen that episode of The Simpsons with the Itchy and Scratchy and Poochie show? Yeah, they yeah. they introduce yeah. a new character, Poochie. <laughs> yeah. And then Homer refuses to do the dialogue for the final episode. Yeah, so yeah. they just do this very like hastily. You see the cell being pulled out. Yeah. Like, I, I must go now. My planet needs me. <laughs> and then the cell... Of Poochie comes off the screen. It's like yeah. somebody made an entire film of that. Yeah, I wrote in my notes, audio animatronic Carrie Fisher. Uh, <laughs> the whole thing is like her saying one or two lines and then the characters around her just like filling in the gaps extensively. Yeah, I think it would have been better to have just not had her in the movie at all. Yeah. But I don't understand. Like you've got Mark Hamill, who all throughout interviews looks like he's chomping at the bit to get back in the film like (laughs) back in the star wars land and whether or not you like what they did with luke in last jedi i don't understand one why they had this sort of they set up this treasure hunt in force awakens that seemed weird and also i'm very much interested who allowed like whose decision it was to kill him off at the end of last jedi it seems such a definitive end to a character considering Mm -hmm. that the trilogy hadn't finished yet yeah i don't understand why they didn't leave it a little bit more open-ended for someone else to come in it that's the problem with last jedi it did feel very self-contained and closed off to the point where like i had no idea what they were going to do for the third movie at all well that's the thing i have with that film as well is that and i mentioned it is that the final shot and the, the ending of the film it feels like an ending the core message of what The Last Jedi has and how that film ends, I feel like that should have been the end of the last film. Mm. Final shot as well of the kid holding the broom, looking at the stars. That is chef's kiss. Brilliant. Like That should be the end of the trilogy. I wish the trilogy had been made with that as its defining message Mm. and that shot as its like a thesis statement kind of Mm. thing. Just this is what this was about. And yeah, I agree that with... um, As much as I love the arc of uh, Luke in The Last Jedi... I know it's a it's a symbol of him becoming one with the Force and making this conscious decision to fully reconnect with the Force itself. But in terms of what it does with the character of Luke and what it kind of restricts him in terms of appearance or that type of thing, it's like they had these three characters and to not have them together in one single scene is... It is kind of unforgiven in a way. And I don't say that that's The Last Jedi's fault, but I think it's like a trilogy level, that type of fault is that there's no scene in this whole trilogy with han solo leia and luke on screen at all 
No. But I, I do say, at, at least with Luke, they do something more interesting with his character than one, just have him stand around and give exposition like Leia has relegated to throughout yeah, yeah. the trilogy, really. But I think with a lot of people, I think people would be less hard on that Luke arc if they hadn't killed him off at the end because if you look at it in the cold light of day, he never gets off that island. It's kind mm. of a depressing way to deal with that character because I think if they'd redeemed him at the end of that film but then have him come back and then have one last runaround in the final mm. film and then he dies at the end of the trilogy sort of thing, that'll be way more satisfying, I think. Yeah. Because even when you see him again in the fucking Rise of Skywalker, he's still on the fucking island. He doesn't appear anywhere else apart from the last shot. So it's no. like it's like he's doomed to be on that island for the entire trilogy. It feels very kind of claustrophobic, I suppose, like un- unnecessarily yeah. so. I think that is something that actually, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but the Duel of the Fate scripts did better in terms of its reintegration yeah. of <laughs> yeah. Luke Skywalker into the main body of the film by having him be this Force-like mentor, not just in a Obi-Wan sense where he just turns up every now and again to give exposition, but he's still like an active part of both Kylo Ren's and Rey's development from a spiritual point of view. And that's my, that's one of my one good things about that script. I'm not saying it did it particularly well, but that's where I thought that they were going to go with that character from yeah, that point. Because this would be probably be a good time to talk about Mark Hamill's appearance in Rise of Skywalker because he does not give a fuck. <laughs> no. He just looks like he's just had a few beers. The wig as well. Like oh, you, you can tell he's like he got into some shape for The Last <laughs> Jedi. And he's just let it all go for... Um... I love that he got into shape for Force Awakens as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like they, it's like they told him to get in shape. And then, oh yeah, the script's not ready yet. The script's not ready yet. <laughs> and then like he comes in, buff. Yeah, I'm back, baby. Reads the script. I've got no lines. What? <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the last scene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd love to be a fly on the wall when he first read that script. Like that Force Awakens script. <laughs> to be honest, I imagine it would have gone something like Yoda's speech about hate leads to suffering <laughs> and all that. Kind of, like, yeah. Oh man. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, at least I'll get to do something in the, in the next one. And he, yeah. <laughs> reads in fact, that Palpatine one. gets more to do in this film as well than Luke Skywalker. Oh. I will say though, out of the original trilogy actors, ultimately it is Luke Skywalker and Mark Hamill that gets the most to do in terms of acting and in terms of interest i know that he originally it's been well publicized that he didn't like what the direction was for luke skywalker in that film initially and then came around to it later on whether or not that's true is another thing entirely if he if he yeah, does yeah. harbor any uh any ill will towards that particular arc i imagine he was still miffed about it ending with the death yeah yeah but i would still say that of the three characters his is the one with the most to do and the most interesting arc because i like han solo stuff in the force awakens as well but essentially han solo is a character that's been in stasis in the years since he's yeah, just yeah. the same man i think i mentioned on a previous episode but he's supposed to be our constant but it also yeah. leaves him with a character that isn't that interesting still but still gets that big moment to die but i think that that death just it does feel very unsatisfying because the way that they do it leaves you with the thought oh they're going to do something else with this later on yes they never do 
they kind of recreate him well, but I don't feel like they've moved the character on much from where mm. he was the last time we saw him. And yeah, I never felt like the whole Ben Solo thing, it didn't, I think it was the way they staged it all and the way they talked about it. It didn't feel particularly impactful or like it impacted the characters that much. Mm. So yeah, I think that's why like The Force Awakens, although it's a fun watch, every time I watch it, it just it becomes lesser and lesser because it, there's nothing yeah. much narratively that holds it up. No, and I, and I felt a lot of excitement about that film when I first saw it. And I do think it's a fun watch. Like J.J. Abrams makes... When it comes to like sci-fi action, he makes very flashy, very viscerally entertaining movies. And I can't fault it really from a technical point of view. And I think it does something interesting about the two characters of Kylo Ren and Rey, both approaching them as being fans of Star Wars itself and fans of the legacies, which is an aspect of the film that doesn't really come back into play with the rise of Skywalker. But I like that the idea that they represent two different factions of the Star Wars fan base as well. They both have their own, you know, memorabilia surrounding the uh, the original trilogy. That's something that I appreciate. But by and large, it's an, like I say, like with The Hobbit, that is a film in which I was more excited by the prospect of where are they going to go next? And the answer really is by the end of it, nowhere really. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, it ends in Tatooine. It's like poetry, it rhymes. Yeah, I'm constantly reminded of that image. And I think from the moment we first saw it, you knew how up against it everyone was and how lost they all were. And I, I'm, I'm mentioning that image of of Peter Jackson sitting all alone in the middle of that Erebor set on The yeah. Hobbit, looking just completely exhausted and lost. Broken. I, to be perfectly honest, I would bet money that there's a similar image of J.J. Abrams doing the same fucking thing on this film. Yeah. Because it feels like very similar things happened as regarding this trilogy as to the Hobbit trilogy. Um, and the loss of control as well, yeah, I think. Like, I think so. Because I do think in order to bring J.J. Abrams back into the fold, he was promised probably a lot more control over the film than he was eventually provided because if the rumors are to be believed and the various leaks of which i don't think all of them are to be believed but even if you read between the lines about some of the things that people have spoke of and when you look at the general structure of the film you can see that there are some battles some huge battles that have been lost in the making of this film you know i've actually got some quotes here regarding the um creation and filming i think what happened as well i think we, we touched on it a little bit on the last episode about there being too many cooks involved in this film and it, it seems that way because i was just looking at how the film was created and you've got abrams and terrio as the writers but they have to answer to kathleen kennedy then you've got Michelle Rejwan, who's the other producer. Yeah. And then they had to collaborate with all the other heads of department, which is like Rick Carter, Roger Guay, Kevin Jenkins, yep. Michael Kaplan, and Neil Scanlon. They all had a two cents to put in. It just seems like that way. Like I've got a quote from Kathleen Kennedy here where she was saying, Nobody was being overly polite. If you didn't think something made sense, if you couldn't follow it, if you thought from a fan's point of view that you're stepping outside the lines and it would be a bogus kind of thinking, no one was afraid to say that because we knew how important it was to get it right and we didn't let things go. Yeah, so that's not the way to make a movie. I get the feeling as well to make something that is appeasing to the fans and I think when it comes to making these films, they should 
tread a fine line between both providing you with something that is entertaining and something that you enjoy, but something that is also different and what you didn't know that you wanted. And yeah, yeah. it's not about giving you just what you want. And for me, I, I think that is what made and broke people on The Last Jedi is, for me, it gave me what, what I wanted. I think uh, I released a the Nostalgia Awakens video as well where I said, looking at The Last Jedi, I want to be challenged. I've had my film where it's all nostalgia now with The Force Awakens. Now I want to be challenged by a Star Wars film. And I got that with The Last Jedi. For a lot of people, that didn't really hit the mark for them. That They didn't want to be challenged on in that way and that hard on these particular subjects. And I completely understand that. So it didn't give them what they didn't know they wanted essentially it didn't fulfill them i think though it took a swing and that's what they were afraid of with this film they were afraid of taking another swing and instead they played it so safe in so many different places that is essentially just an acknowledgement of that of them saying that we had our our group of people that were all entrenched in star wars that were telling the director of the film no, you can't do this, you can do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. And it's like forcing them into a very narrow point of view of what a Star Wars film has to be. I mean, I've got another quote from JJ here, and he's describing it as the opposite, but in fact, I actually think he is describing the end result. So he describes the making of the movie as a crazy challenge, and he was saying it could have been a wildly uncomfortable consortium of ideas and shoving (laughs) in of answers and band-aids and bridges. That's exactly what it is. And I was like, that's exactly what you, you've made that film. Like, you didn't get away from it. That That's what the fucking thing is. I mean, I know these talents are like, would have forced like Disney. You have to sign so many NDAs just to even make the film. And it's in quotes like that where you can really see what they're trying to say. It's mm-hmm. like, I'm, I'm telling you what the film is in a way that's not going yeah. to get me sued. It could have been this. Yeah, exactly. Wink, wink. <laughs> The other thing I never understood, obviously the whole trilogy went out of the gate far too quickly, but I never understood this two-year gap in between films. And and for quite a a long time, it was actually going to be even less than that. I know the gap between the last two films was supposed to be 18 months, Mm -hmm. when obviously all the other films in the uh, previous trilogies had always been released three years apart, which was a much more sensible way of doing it, because you always had a... um, a clear line like you knew that you would not be starting the next film until the previous film had actually been released and you know you could assess mm-hmm. it yeah i don't understand why they had to release them in that quick a succession it's the same problem that they had with talking about chris terrio batman vs superman to justice league yeah. was that batman vs superman came out and was not a huge bomb but a huge disappointment I mean, I'm sure we have some Snyder fans listening as they do seem to be legion at the moment. (laughs) So I was not a particular fan of Batman vs Superman. A lot of people weren't. And Warner Brothers found themselves in a position where in like six weeks time, they were going to be shooting Justice League. So they had to massively reestablish their point of view before going ahead with that film within a very short period of time with sets that had already been built and locations that had already been secured with a cast that was already in place and shooting already decided that's not how you make films well it is now (laughs) it is now (laughs) yeah now you should make films even 10 years ago when you look at the way that christopher nolan made the batman films that's how films should be made where it's Mm. like i'll do one film for you i do batman film then i'll do one for me and then I'll do another Batman film. And I always thought, like, even the anticipation that I had between Batman Begins to The Dark Knight from Dark Knight to 
The Dark Knight Rises. With that gap, that period of time that he had, I had a far more anticipation for those films as a result. And that seems to have all gone out of the window now. It seems to be just like, how many films can we make within this franchise within the shortest period of time? Yeah, and it, and with those films, it was a much more organic process because, you know, when they made Batman Begins, there was no expectation to for them to make a sequel. And when they made mm-hmm. The Dark Knight, there was no expectation for them to make The Dark Knight Rises. You know, you, you should just treat everything on its own terms and, and on a film-by-film film basis. Like, this whole notion of planning like 10 years in advance uh-huh. it doesn't work because trends change audience opinions change the movies might not be any good yeah and you might have to change tack anyway and i've never understood i mean they, they just about get away with it in marvel because i think they make so many films and they are they've got so many different characters that even if a film underwhelms there's there's one in another month that, <laughs> that's coming out that may be all right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I find it strange that everyone tries to be like the MCU, but like the MCU is, I think, is a very unique case that cannot it be is, absolutely. easily replicated. And also it suits that particular universe because I think it kind of replicates how that comic book world works as well. Whereas... Even when you look at like DC, it doesn't work for them. Mm-hmm. They've always operated differently anyway. And the way that the stories are told are, are different. Yeah, and even now they tried to do the MCU thing and that's gone out of the window completely. And yeah. I know that, you know, they're doing films like um, The Suicide Squad is related to uh, Birds of Prey, which is related to Suicide Squad. But there's also this whole multiverse thing that they're deciding to embrace instead where it's like, you know what? They're all their own thing. They might have the actors playing the same characters here and there and that type of thing. You might get a couple of different interpretations of the same character as well with different actors. But we're doing the multiverse thing instead where not everything has to run into each other. And I think, weirdly enough, I think that that recent DC fandom thing that they did, even though I'm not the biggest fan of what they've produced so far, I think from a standpoint of looking at director's visions, there's much more chance to be creative and to put a vision to the screen there i think it's going to require warner brothers to do a lot less meddling as well in director's visions but i think at least there's a sense that you're going to get a different thing with the films i mean if you look at what they're doing with the suicide squad and the Mm. batman everything seems to be there at the moment and then you compare it to a film that i thought was okay which was joker it's Mm. like you've got these strong vision-led films here they're not all going to succeed they're not all going to succeed, and Warner Brothers aren't going to help but tamper with a few of them, but at least they're giving the the space and opportunity to do that within that framework. I mean, I'm kind of done on superhero films anyway, but I will say that when I saw the uh, the trailer for The Batman and the behind-the-scenes snippet for The Suicide Squad, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm interested. I'm very interested. I want, want to see that. And I think that's something that Lucasfilm should have embraced, absolutely. And the, the thing is as well that I know this is something that Kathleen Kennedy's spoken about very recently, in fact, a couple of days ago she has spoken about this, but I've always thought the thing about Star Wars is you have this wide universe of stories to tell. It's very much Tolkien-esque in terms of the how far the lore goes and how deep this whole thing goes. People have built onto this for years and years and years, and yet we are still given the same stories within a very limited time period, and it's like There's so much that you can do with this series to go into so many different directions, and yet they're all trying to still 
tell the same stories that are dancing around each other. And that gives a lot less opportunity for, for vision, for creativity to flourish. And she, uh, Kathleen Kennedy's come out recently and said, well, we've, we've decided that, you know, there's like 25,000 years of stories that we can tell here. And it's like, why didn't you fucking do that from the start? That was the point of buying Star Wars is mm. if you're just going to tell like the same stories that dance around the same 60 years or so, you're going to run out of ideas very, very quickly. And in fact, I think probably, you know what the best thing would have done? It was to not start off with it, the trilogy. Because I, I agree with you as well. I think you should approach every film individually. But I think when it comes to a Star Wars trilogy, you've got to have a certain degree of an idea of where to go. It has to be fluid, but you have to know like what through line is really for that trilogy. A direction is for it. And they didn't have that for that trilogy. And I was like, well, you know what? Tell a few different stories in the Star Wars universe first. Show us what you can do with that. And then... Build the anticipation for the big return. Yeah. Sorry, I'm ranting. No, I'm really no, going off but on I one. think that uh, artistically would have worked, but I think from a business point of view, they were never, ever, ever, ever going <laughs> to no. do that. Yeah. That's why I'm here and they are there. <laughs> well, they are there, but they're still doing a fucking awful job of it. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. It's like they are there because they're, you know, pricks, because most business people are to be honest but <laughs> i think it's like a part of the job description but um it does not mean that they are making good decisions it just means no. that they are very good at being duplicitous <laughs> basically yeah. and, and backstabbing and all that bollocks and they are very good at balancing the books i mean that's the other thing i mean to be honest they're probably not even that good at doing that at the moment no bob Iger's being dragged under the bus for the fox acquisition at the moment so um oh is that is that the case is it it seems to be because i think because of uh, what you know all the stuff that's happening because of the fox acquisition all the rainy day money is gone so it's yeah. not a good situation. And I think that's the reason why they basically dragged him back, I imagine, kicking and screaming. Because <laughs> he'd, he'd already retired, hadn't he? And they retired in the January, yeah. and then all of a sudden he's back, which is uh, bizarre in of itself. Anyway, back to this fucking film that we still can't uh, quite We talk can't about. seem to talk about. No. We just can't. I've got loads of notes on it as well. <laughs> I have. I, you know what? I've got my notebook right here. I'm, sh I'm showing it to you. Yeah. It's just like page after page. Of, Honest, we have notes. Of notes. notes. And we've done our homework. <laughs> right. I'm going to talk about the story. Right. So. Yes. Let's do it. <laughs> right. Look like, at like, it. like I said in, in, in like uh, earlier, when in doubt, MacGuffin. So... <laughs> This fucking story, it just seems like... I don't know how much time they had to write this film. It doesn't seem like they had a very long... Another quote I had from JJ is like, I've never rewritten a film as much as this one. It's like a tide. There's a new script every morning. Ooh. That's bad. Like, that's really bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just seems like they lean back on all these things. So, yeah, you've got the uh, the MacGuffins, you've got the, the bollocks with all that, and then you've got the plethora of stories and the fact that they fall back on these familiar things. And it seems like something that JJ just cannot get... He can't seem to get over it. And The Force Awakens suffered from it as well. Is one of the big issues with that film was the, uh, was the star killer base yeah. being just another Death Star ripoff. Yep. And in this film, we have yet more... Death Star ripoffs. It just seems to be this whole idea of these planet killing devices. And it's like we can't get away from them in these JJ Abrams Star Wars films. I mean, that's yeah. that one of the nice refreshing things about Last Jedi is that it didn't have anything like that in it in it. I <laughs> laughed in the cinema when that star killing Imperial Cruiser, what are they called now? The uh what the Star Destroyers. The Star Destroyer, yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, yeah. The Star Destroyer. Yeah. When that turned up and 
then just obliterated that planet, that Korosawa planet. Yeah. I laughed heartily. I was like, oh my god, he's done it again. It's like, it didn't even need that. Oh, Kajimi. That's yeah, it, Kajimi, it? yes. I was going to say kimchi, but that's a Japanese um, pickle. <laughs> and it's based on the planet itself as well. Again, it looked fantastic. It was based on um, the Hidden Fortress as well, which is a deep dive into a, a Star Wars reference considering George Lucas's inspirations to make a new hope mm. and it looked fantastic and then you have this brand new world you establish it and it's just essentially a sacrificial lamb for jj abrams to destroy again and it's like i i did not need that again to feel the gravity of the situation you've already established that there's like a billion star destroyers does it matter that they can destroy planets i could not care less i think that's mm. A weird J.J. Abrams thing. And you just get all these, like, stock storytelling things where you've got, uh, okay, we've got uh, we've got to do uh, a treasure hunt. Yeah. Because we can fill out the first 40 minutes with this treasure hunt. And I would say this is, I'm not even sure this is the first film in the franchise to have no original ideas, but I don't think there is a single original idea in this film like there's nothing new that it's bringing to the table yeah even thematically it still just reverts to time i think that's why one i keep forgetting about it yeah and two why we were finding it really hard to sort of get into it because it's so vapid it's not even that yeah. it's impenetrable <laughs> there's nothing there it's like grasping at fog that is essentially yeah. what it is like trying <laughs> yeah. to grapple with this film yeah and as soon as you stop to think about it for more than five seconds the whole thing falls apart anyway so it's mm. like how did you feel about Palpatine returning? Not just the fact that they are relying on dredging old Palpatine just yeah. to have some sort of impact for the final film, but what do you feel like about the presentation of him and the performance and that type of thing? How do you feel about the Palpatineness of the uh, of the film? I mean, as always, I always think that Ian McDiarmid is always putting in 110% into the portrayal of the Emperor. Like He was always one of the best things in the prequel trilogy. Mm. And in his portrayal, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it at all. Like And the way they executed it, but everything surrounding it and his the reason for being there is just completely wrong. Yeah. And I would never want to blame the actor for that because i remember i think when they phoned him up he was sort of quite surprised that they wanted him back um he thought i was done and dusted to be honest he's probably about as old as palpatine is now yeah. as well so uh, yeah. <laughs> for some reason as well when yeah. you say like they called him up i just have this image of like palpatine in his robes sat in his in his house on his on his chair favorite smoking chair watching a tiny tv in the corner yeah. count countdown is on yeah. and it's like, hello yes <laughs> palpatine yes, residence <laughs> i was just about to go to the shops <laughs> but i am glad in a way that he's there because at least like it's the same thing as with the prequels because and it's all purely because of ian mcdiamond is that well at least he's bringing something to this thing if it is like the full-on campy theatrical palpatine experience but i think because it doesn't have anything of substance behind it even the prequels had a little bit of substance with that character yeah i couldn't i couldn't help but feel that he had any impact whatsoever unfortunately so you're having a good old laugh yeah, to yourself you, the what? way you talked about that was like it was some sort of like weird peep show it was like are you up for some campy palpatine experience <laughs> 
Come here. Come hither. Look behind this curtain. Yeah. <laughs> Put on this cloak. Mm. <laughs> Execute order 69. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to look up Palpatine porn later. I'm gonna have to just to see what is there. Be there. It will be. It there. was like that time when we looked up Aladdin porn. That's that was hilarious. <laughs> it's definitely gonna to be Palpatine and Yoda. Anyway, but I don't know because it it seems so like detached from anything else. It just screams that they had this idea one day. Like, there was no plan, and they just sort of like, oh, let's, let's put him in the film. Yeah. And I'm not even sure whether this is a um, a reshoot, you know, because there's, there's those rumours surrounding Matt Smith and a character yes. he was going to play. And it was ousted because the executives thought that, oh, no one's going to know who this is. And he was supposed to be, like, the big bad of the film. I mean, I'm not sure how true that is, but considering... Even like the uh, approved quotes that I've managed to find, it doesn't seem that much a stretch of the fact that there was a new script every fucking day or, and it was being rewritten mm-hmm. constantly. And the fact that I, there was a rumour going around that almost 40% of the film is, is reshot footage. I think there's some truth to the reshoot aspect yeah. of the film as well. Because it, if you look at it in comparison to films that have been... And, and not just every film does reshoots, they build it into the budget. But it's normally like pick-up shots or the um, emphasising an action scene here and there, that type of thing. Normally about two or three weeks worth of footage, unless you're something like Lord of the Rings, which is an entirely different setup. But with this film, if you look at it structurally and in terms of even the way that the film flows, it has that feeling of a film that has been largely reshot as well. Like Even in comparison to something like Fantastic Four in a structural sense, or the Fantastic Four as the marketing seemed to uh, push that film. But yeah, yeah. it does have like a similar type of incoherence. Yeah. I'd have to watch the film again, but I'm pretty sure whenever Palpatine's mentioned, it's usually mentioned in the kind of shots that would be uh, ripe for reshoots. Yeah, like uh, singles. Yeah, and also a lot of the things involving Palpatine looked like they were shot on a sort of a green screen set up yeah so it wouldn't be of much of a stretch to think that yeah all the palpatine stuff is is reshoot material mm-hmm. i'm pretty sure there's huge swathes of the movie where no one mentions his name oh there is and the fact that his reintroduction is in the actual crawl itself yeah, yeah. because his introduction has no impact whatsoever it just kind of is uh, why do i always go back to flaccid dick <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like it's like a flaccid dick of a reveal. It's like, plonk it out on the table. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It just spills out on, onto the screen. Yeah, because like, a lot of the times they mention him are in those um, exposition-heavy scenes with uh, Dominic Manahan in the Rebel base sort of thing, uh, which looks like it was set up in a car park somewhere. Yeah. And they don't bother to explain it either, because if they were going to explain it, it would have been woven into the film's structure much more organically if it was there yeah, from the of course, start. Yeah, yeah. You know, the best they can come up with is, oh, somehow he returned. Somehow he returned, yeah. And like Dominic Manahan's sort of coming up with, oh, cloning... <laughs> <laughs> that was a good Dominic Monaghan impression as well. People seem to think I look like him, but I, I strongly disagree. You know what? I've never seen it before. Now that you have mentioned Don't it, you I fucking start. see it a Don't little you start. bit. No. But he's only in the film because um, J.J. Abrams lost a bet. I read something about this, but I can't remember the exact uh, play out of the bet. Yeah, I can't remember. It was yeah. to do with football, wasn't it? Yeah, it was something to do with football and uh, J.J. lost. And um, yeah. the prize was to be in Star Wars. 
Yeah, it's like the prize was to take Kelly Marie Tran's role. Oh, man. I've got to say, her treatment in this film is the thing that makes me think that the people involved in this film hate The Last Jedi. I find that the way in which they treat her character after everything that the actress had endured as well with a certain part of the fan base... I felt it was unwarranted. I didn't particularly respond to her character in a great sense or anything, but it wasn't anything to do with the actor. It was more so towards that part of the film that she occupied. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like the way in which they treated her character was such a disrespect to the actress. Yeah, yeah. Because you could have easily as well have had her fill the Dominic Monaghan role. Like, why introduce these characters when you've already got characters there that can fulfill that role? And perhaps with a little bit more flourish as well, considering that they have a pre-existing connection to the series. I, yeah, I didn't the, the, get that. I think with with a lot of this as well, and especially with the Finn thing as well, there seems to be something a little bit more sinister at play, I think, as well. Because it seems to be very strange that in the previous two movies, they set up relationships which were, on Earth terms, interracial. Yeah. When we get to this film, all of the relationships that are established uh, yeah. suddenly are race appropriate yes so you've got the thing with obviously daisy ridley and adam driver and then they give finn a new girlfriend figure mm-hmm. who was also black yeah there's something off there because like that jana character is just there to give finn a, a black girlfriend that's all the reason she's there for again we don't need that character for this particular film to be introduced at that point this should be like bringing it to a close with the characters we know and love and i think she's only introduced as well both for that romance reason as well, because they've teased a thin romance for like the last two films, but also because it's to give some purpose to the fact that he's an ex-Stormtrooper as well, which, as I mentioned on a previous episode, is something they completely flubbed from the word go anyway. Yeah. Like it's the most interesting aspect that these uh, films had, and they fucked it up. And I agree with you in that regard, in terms of the way in which they've approached these characters, in terms of this... Well, it's, it's it's essentially racism, no matter which way you look at it. Mm. And I think that's probably why, um, out of the actors that have been involved in this film, John Boyega's actually been probably the most vocal about disowning it and getting past Star Wars now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there just seems to be an awful lot of new characters here for just the sake of it. Um, like, again, yeah. they, they even give Poe a sort of girlfriend figure that happens to be oh, the same thought, race yeah, as do, well yeah. with the with Zori Bliss character, who's again just another exposition character. And another friend of J.J. Abrams as well. Mm. Yeah, the other thing I, I thought as well the um, that was unnecessary was, I mean, even though I love him, and he probably should have been in these movies far earlier, is Richard E. Grant as General Pride. Yeah. Because they had a character fulfilling that role anyway. Yeah, Hawks. Uh, and that again, that's one of the other things, that, like the, the Jewel of the Fate script. I mean, it did it really badly because obviously we're talking about he lost the Star Wars. <laughs> he lost the but Star Wars. It was trying to do something with that character. Yeah, yeah. Whereas that was a very disappointing end to that character. Yeah, it was, it, and it was so kind of like offhand yeah, as well. Yeah. But even when it comes to like, I like Richard E. Grant. I like to see him in in any films, even in bad ones. He's always a delight to see on screen. Mm. But when it came to his death. And it gives it this big moment where I like even that you get to see his body fly out of the window from a wide shot. Like it's a, it's very well done in terms of the CGI. But I couldn't help but think, wow, that would have been far more impactful if it was Hooks. Yeah. Like instead, it's this character that I've known for about half a film. Yeah. And it's like even turning Hooks into this spy character after we only have to go to the Force Awakens to see him essentially standing as space Hitler, giving yeah. the speech yeah. to the First Order. It's like. Ugh, this shouldn't be what we should be doing with his character. 
No. And I think that's what this film does not feel like a big grand finale, like, because these characters are just not given finale material. Mm-hmm. It just feels like a placeholder film. It really does. It doesn't feel like this big end. I mean, it's a big end, but... <laughs> you know, but um, yeah, it certainly is. And it's toothless as well. I think the other thing we have to talk about is that it's it's toothlessness because there's, there's something that we haven't mentioned that I really want to mention. And that yeah. is... And it's something that... It's one of the only things on first viewing that truly affected me in a positive way. Chewy. Chewy. And then as soon as they... And it was like, fuck you, movie. You can't commit to anything. That was the moment it lost me completely. Yeah. There was another transport. That should become a meme now. There was another transport. That should become like a meme for for absolutely yeah. being a coward when it comes to a plot point. It's like, yeah, yeah. there's another transport should become the meme, the trope for that. I mean, that would be a very good way to describe this film anyway. It's very cowardly. Yeah. Another one is the whole um, C-3PO memory deletion that's reversed yep. by the end of the movie as well. Like, Do you get the feeling that this film was just simply made? I know you mentioned just then it feels very much like a placeholder. Do you feel like it was just made just so they could get to the end of this trilogy and put the brakes on? It's almost yeah. like, let's just get it done, get it behind us, and then we'll... It's the contractual obligation film. Yeah, and it's, it's almost like we'll regroup after this and take another go at it a few years down the line. I mean, there's strong rumours of them even completely overwriting this trilogy with uh, they had this Gubbins with... With something called the veil of the force that they're gonna like it's almost like create their own star wars multiverse and sort of rewrite it ah right and even go as far as having um sebastian stan play a lick skywalker and there's so <laughs> many fucking things yeah. going around you don't know whether any of it's true but there's no. going to be something in there that is god i just want them to do something different no no yeah i'm like i don't need to see the same characters the same period or another variation of that give me something new within this universe that makes yeah. me think that i need something now that's going to make me fall in love with star wars again because i'm not there anymore like yeah. I'm, I'm way out of it i've been out of it for quite some time and this film just kind of like hammered home how little i actually feel about it now yeah i say that i've talked about it for nearly four hours but it's <laughs> trying to convince myself no I, i'm okay yeah everything just feels like contractual obligation because yeah you've got the stuff with chewy which could have lent real stakes yeah to raise arc at that point of the film mm-hmm. and and they don't commit to anything i mean and also like talk about the classic jj abrams setting things up and not paying them off uh, like the Knights of Ren, again, seem to be, I think, a casualty of reshoots as well and whatever else is going on. You know what the thing is, though, just talking about that Chewy thing, is that I thought this when I saw it in the cinema as well, when Ray finds out that there's another transport, when she thinks that she's killed Chewy. Again, I think we needed something in this film as well to establish that, I don't know what it is with these films, but having the main character have this seduction to the dark side, like... There's nothing about Rey that makes me think that she would ever turn to the dark side because she's so pure anyway. Mm. And I think they needed to do something with this film, in this film, to establish that if that's the way that they were going down, that she was going to try and be seduced at the end to this way of thinking. There needed to be an inciting event in that film that would make us question whether or not she actually would. Like, it needed to feel legitimate, and it never does. Wouldn't have been interesting as well as if you did go down this road of having um, this person of light and person of dark and have the trilogy actually be about them swapping sides. Yeah. This changing over. Like, imagine if Ray would have been the bad guy by the end of it, yeah, like, without yeah. us knowing in a kind of, like, there's a video game called a Shadow of the Colossus where you don't realise that you're the bad guy in this game until the very end. It's like, mm. that would have been far more interesting, also more challenging and a little bit more uh, beyond the grasp of 
of the filmmakers, I think. But yeah. with Chewie, with her destroying the transport, I couldn't help but think to myself that when she finds out that there was another transport and Chewie wasn't in it, like she'll go, oh, thank God I just killed another transport full of prisoners. That's okay. That's okay. Mm. You know, like, <laughs> I just killed God knows how many people, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's fine. It's fine. Chewie wasn't on that one. I think that's where there's a lack of tangible stakes throughout the whole film. I mean, there's even things where I just think they've put it in because it would look cool in the trailer. I mean, the thing directly in front of it is that thing with the TIE fighter and her doing a backflip over it. I'm sure that set piece is entirely there just because they thought it would look cool in the trailer. They needed a trailer shot. Because it doesn't have any kind of narrative relevance or, or anything else at that time. No. That's why I don't feel like I'm watching a, a real movie when I'm watching this film because it's just bits like that nothing has any consequence Mm -hmm. there's nothing that it's bringing to the table it's just going through the motions giving you everything you expect in like the the lowest common denominator way without any flourish or no any creativity or challenge it's just like checking boxes towards the end yeah you mentioned this in regards to the prequels as well and it is something that i wanted to speak about with this and just combining two of your previous points but uh, with the prequels you mentioned as well that there was a sense that with some of the plot points or oh, you wouldn't get that unless you'd seen the ex- uh, you know extended materials the uh, the EU extended universe yeah, yeah. or read the books or played the video games uh, general grievous is one of those i think he works really <laughs> well in the clone wars tv series but he's fucking shocking in the film mm. and it's like oh so now we have to watch that to understand why he's this particular way Mm. it's like no a film should stand on its own i 100 percent agree with that but i think the rise of skywalker takes it not just a a step further but a leap and a jump because and i think this plays into your second point about the fact that there's rumors about this film being largely reshot because i think i actually find it to be quite incoherent at times as well Mm. and hard to follow there's a lot of mcguffin stuff going on that i don't really know what it's all about and so much has come out since the film has been released that, oh, well, no, you have to read this visual breakdown book of the film. You have to read the novelization <laughs> as well of the film to get if Palpatine's a clone or a descendant or, you know, whatever. And it's like so much more came out about the film after it came out in terms of the story from all of the materials around it. But I'm not just talking about like minor character world building it's like huge points that should have been in the film like for example who the fuck palpatine was (laughs) how he had survived or come back you know that type of thing yeah it's like oh no you have to read the back of this fucking kellogg's box in order to get why film does x y and z and yeah i think this film really takes that and to a point of absurdity I think that's a big problem with your cinematic universes and also your um, mixed media. Yeah. They kind of think, oh, it's um, an epic story told across various different medium. And in actual fact, to be honest, the other medium is always secondary. It's usually there to sort of wallpaper over the cracks <laughs> in the original yeah. story because I imagine yeah. a lot of that stuff was created after the fact to kind of go, oh, mm-hmm. fuck, we did explode that, should we? Oh, <laughs> fuck. Um, yeah, put it in that book. <laughs> it's like that. And it's like everything should really, it has to stand on its own because you have to be in the knowledge that people are only going to, you know, be watching this one film. And to be honest, they kind of deserve to 
they're given all the necessary information. Yeah. And it's not even like an artistic thing in terms of withholding information. They don't fucking have the information. <laughs> They've just yeah. made it up and gone, oh, yeah, that's cool. We'll think about it we'll later. We'll think about it later, yeah. We'll put it on the bottom of some fucking Star Wars shoes or something <laughs> in the future. <laughs> to be honest, in the last page of my notes for the film, I think I wrote bullshit about seven times. <laughs> and one of my best notes, I think, is when Snap Wexley dies and I was like, oh no, Snap Wexley, TM. <laughs> this character that is no character, it's just because he's JJ's mate. And it's like, oh no, Snap Wexley. It's, it's a film populated by JJ Abrams' mates, really. Yeah. I yeah. feel like he felt like this is the last Star Wars movie I'm ever making. If you're a friend and you want to be in a Star Wars movie, now's the time to ask. But yeah, it's got every single modern movie-making bullshit thing in it. Like, it's yeah. even got a fucking blue light in the sky. The ultimate blue light as well, fired right yeah. out of Palpatine's arsehole. <laughs> 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 I mean, that again as well, like, I think it's just because you've coloured my opinion, but that whole section of the film as well screams reshoot to me because of how considering how well designed the rest of the movie is in terms of all of the locations yeah. and um, as we mentioned that Kajimi uh, as well being one location that I absolutely adored and I like the idea of it being like this first order occupied World War II Eastern Village like brilliant idea it looks fantastic I only wish we could have spent more time there in a better yeah. film but when you look at Palpatine's location the, the planet Exegol or whatever it's called every time I say that I feel like it's a petrol station <laughs> honestly exxon <laughs> yeah exactly and you look at that it's so under designed and so last minute i don't get a sense of that location all i can think of it's cloudy and there's lightning and there's big cement blocks yeah that's about it it's so under designed and underplayed and then you've got palpatine himself in this i know you haven't played you're not really a gamer but uh, there's a game of play called portal 2 Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The villain in it is this thing called GLaDOS, and it hangs yeah, down yeah. from the ceiling at one point and from this apparatus that's very much like the apparatus that Palpatine uses to move about, which I don't know what it's actually connected to because he seems to use it to go through a few different locations. <laughs> I will say that I yeah. do think that was stolen entirely from Portal 2 because a few years ago as well, J.J. Abrams had signed a deal with the makers of that game to do a film version of the game. So I feel like that has just been plucked straight out of that game and inserted here. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I feel like it's entirely underdesigned, which again screams to me, build very little green screen reshoot. It, do, it does feel like that way. There's nothing to talk about. That's the thing. Like when you were talking about the positives, like the fact that the only two positives I can get out of this film is C-3PO saying some funny lines and Babu Freak. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> I'm Babu Freak. <laughs> hey! <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm the same. And I think of our discussion, we've actually had to discipline ourselves to begin talking about this film because it's so much more interesting to talk about the surrounding, everything surrounding the rise of Skywalker rather than the film itself because the film itself is so empty. Yeah, because like I said, we've not even mentioned like Billy D. Williams and it's like... <sighs> he doesn't seem entirely all there, to be honest. He's effortlessly cool, but yeah, I feel like he's just been like wheeled out of the cryogenic freezer. Yeah, I was going to say he's online from the nursing home. <laughs> I reckon at the nursing home, he's in character as Lando all of the time. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, it's very obvious that the walking stick is just out of shot. 
and um, that they, yes. you know, they've sat him on things. And it's just like, why? Why is he here? They've just rolled him out. The same reason as Palpatine's here and any number of things is just tick that box, move along, let's get to the end of this thing. Yeah. It's like it's like the last stretch of a marathon that you've already come last in. Yeah. The, the other thing as well that I've not even thought about, but I just thought about it now, is like this is the last film that John Williams is going to have scored. I'm pretty sure this is a, a score that's been edited to fuck anyway. Like The score itself, to listen to individual from the uh, film, is actually quite nice. But it's still one of his least memorable scores from the whole Star Wars saga. Mm. In fact, I would say that the sequel trilogy scores have not been up to the same standard as even the prequel trilogy were, to be honest. There are some amazingly memorable themes, such as Ray's theme, for example. And I like the Resistance theme. That That's a great theme. Mm. I really like that, but... They're lovely scores to listen to, but I don't feel like he was captured by the material this time around. No. And I think even in The Force Awakens, the point in which it probably lost him a little bit was when they edited out his new score to add in the uh, the Two Sons score from A New Hope over Ray catching the lightsaber. Like, it's a lovely moment, but it's all based on nostalgia because of that hit. Yeah, yeah. I like John Williams stuff, but this doesn't... I don't know, I don't feel he's all there with... Especially this particular this one, film. It, this one just feels like the greatest hits. Anyway, let's move <laughs> on to the stats and facts. Let's start talking about numbers and facts. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, stats and facts. This is the part of the podcast where we begin to discuss things like the critical reception, the box office, all of that type of thing. And today we're going to be comparing these... Uh, well, the box office particularly to the previous two films in the series. So... Looking at the budget for this film, it came in at $275 million, mm-hmm. which um, I can see why it would cost so much as well, considering yeah. both its production history and both. Like, they seem to have built these magnificent sets to be used in one shot and move along. <laughs> and it's like, what? I, what? I think it's probably because there's another half film or whatever that's not visible. Yes. Oh, definitely. I mean, I know that there's another thing as well with this. I think we talked about it in the previous episode about the... They're not allowing it to be in two parts or or longer edit. Mm -hmm. It feels incredibly rushed. I mean, we're just talking about that editing at the start where it just goes bonkers for the first, like, 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, so you can see where the money's been thrown away. (laughs) Oh, definitely. Because of the short schedule and everything. So, um, yeah, the fact they had the short schedule and they had to throw a lot of material out and reshoot a lot of material. So, yeah, that's why these films like this end up costing a lot of money. Weirdly enough, though, it's not actually the most expensive film in the sequel trilogy. That goes to the... Last Jedi, which had a budget of $320 million, which was coming off the back of The Force Awakens' success as well. So I imagine they just decided to pump a few more million into that to bolster the vision. It's actually uh, The Force Awakens that has the lowest budget with $245 million. Only. (laughs) Only. Yeah, so even so, it's weird that that's become normalized now as a $200 to $300 million film is now the norm for a tentpole, which I remember when they did it with The Amazing Spider-Man and I found out it cost $250 million. I was like, what? Mm. Where has that money gone? 
I guess that's the norm now. If you had a small country with that, couldn't you? Like <laughs> <laughs> exactly, it's such a gross waste of money. Like even from a film point of view, think of what you could have made with two hundred and seventy-five million. Oh my word! And I think that's also where this gamble hasn't like paid off. It, when you make a movie like that with a huge budget, it's like uh, it's like placing a bet because it, I think we talked about it on a previous podcast about film budgets actually being loans. Yeah, and that's the reason why a lot of film like the like say a schedule like this would have been very short because they have that loan and they have to make and release the film in this window in order to make a return on that money before the interest starts to ramp up and Mm -hmm. they lose a lot of money that way so well when we get to the numbers you can see how they might have lost quite badly on this one oh absolutely looking at the opening of the film it's actually the lowest opening for uh, the sequels trilogy movie at 177 million domestic opening that is for america which is significantly under the domestic opening of jedi the last jedi that is which was 220 mm. million which was significantly below the um, the opening of the force awakens which was 248 million so i think you're seeing the uh the returns are take a, a nosedive kind of thing as the limitations yeah, of yeah. the franchise are coming to, I, I guess I don't even buy into the idea that this franchise is particularly limited in terms of the stories that you can tell. I just think that you have to open the series up to tell a whole manner of different kind of stories and be brave in the stories that you tell. Yeah, This series hasn't been, and I think that's been its downfall because it's been promising the same experience every film along, with the exception of The Last Jedi. But you look at Force Awakens and you look at the rise of Skywalker and you look at Rogue One and it's all got a similar feel. It's like it's it's the things you remember, that's what we're giving you. Mm. And I guess to talk about the worldwide, where this one falls as well, it is the lowest of the sequel trilogy. So right at the top you have, in no surprise to anyone, right at the top you have Force Awakens with over 2 billion, and then you have The Last Jedi with just over, well, 1.3 billion, and then you have The Rise of Skywalker, which is just a fraction above 1 billion. So you're seeing that plunge. It's a plummet. Yeah. And these films need to make at least a billion, really, to start pulling in the profit that Disney really are banking on. Because as you mentioned, they've already spent the money elsewhere. They've already banked on these films making a significant amount of money. So when you look at this, just kind of like scraping by into profit, just into that margin of what they want it to make, it's like, that's not good enough. I think that's probably why they've put the brakes on this for some time as well now. Ironically, the only Star Wars trilogy to actually uh, have a more than a downward trend is uh, the prequel trilogy. <laughs> yeah, because um, even the original trilogy uh, was a uh, a similar actual decline to the sequel trilogy um, when you look mm. at the numbers. But yeah, the the prequel trilogy, um, the lowest grossing entry of that one is uh, Attack of the Clones, and it actually went back up again for yeah. Revenge of the Sith. I imagine because again that film was the film that a lot of people actually wanted to see in the first place. Yeah, whereas this, it's just a a law of diminishing returns i also think as well with the revenge of the sith it was feeling of completeness as well that yeah it was filling the final gap left in the saga essentially Mm, yeah because it was not a promise that we were going to get a sequel trilogy or anything like that and that's why i think to be honest perhaps we should have just left that be (laughs) You know, because the thing is, it's quite funny as well, because they released that box set a couple of months ago of the uh, of the Skywalker saga. And it's like, is the sequel trilogy really part of the Skywalker saga? <laughs> Does, it's very tentative. No, 
<laughs> yeah, it, and it's really shoehorned. You should have renamed the it whole... the Palpatine saga instead. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, fuck it. But yeah, just to go over the week as well that the Rise of Skywalker was released. It was very recent, so you'll know many of these movies. It's uh, number one, Star Wars: The Rise of Skywalker. And number two, you have Jumanji, The Next Level. Number three is Frozen 2. And number four is one of my personal favourites. That would be Cats. <laughs> I can't believe it. I can't believe that it came out the same... Cats came out the same week. Yeah. And of those two films, I had more enjoyment out of Cats. What a Christmas it was. Yeah. And number five, and this is the one I wanted to count to, was Knives Out. Ooh. which was uh, Ryan Johnson's new film that actually did pretty damn well. Have you seen it yet, by the way? No, I still haven't seen it. I still haven't seen uh, Ruin Johnson's <laughs> new film. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's an a- actually really good Agatha Christie with a fantastically yeah. camp uh, Daniel Craig performance. You just have to buy into one thing with Daniel Craig's performance, and that's his accent. Mm. Like Once you buy into it being this theatrical camp nonsense... Mm. It's a certain kind of brilliance to his performance. (laughs) Okay, so moving on to the critical consensus for the film. Let's look at the Rotten Tomatoes score for this film. It actually has a 51% rating on Rotten Tomatoes with a 6.13 out of 10 rating. And the consent... (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Man, 51%. Oh, no, no. I was about to say, that's Brexit, isn't it? But no, it's 52. (laughs) 52. (laughs) So, oh dear. Um, yeah. So everybody that voted for Brexit gave a uh, a, a good response. <laughs> anyway, um, so so the consensus is: Star Wars: The Rise of Skywalker suffers from a frustrating lack of imagination, but concludes this beloved saga with fan-focused devotion. I think they're clutching at straws there as to what to write. <laughs> I know, yeah. The thing is, like, I can feel myself sighing as I'm saying this. I, I uh, imagine the person writing it feels the same. Maybe they should have, like, audio reviews now as well. Like, so you click on the on the headphones and it gives you an audio clip of what the review is and this one would just be a just sigh. A fart. Yeah. <laughs> So the critics review is, as always, from Empire Magazine. Uh, This is a critic I very much enjoy called Helen O'Hara. And she gave the film a 3 out of 5 rating. And she said, It looks gorgeous and offers strong performances from Driver and Ridley in particular. But ultimately the saga ends with neither a bang nor a whimper, but something in between. It reads as a quite negative 3 out of 5 review. And I'm... That's very much how I felt about the film when I first saw it as well. Like I was like, yeah, it's it's a very apathetic three out of five from me. Yeah, that's kind of a diplomatic three out of five. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But now it's definitely it's uh, plummeted in my estimation since. Mm. And the audience score for the film, this is where things change. This film has an 86% approval rating from its audience and a 4.31 out of 5 rating. When you compare it to The Last Jedi, which has something like a 48 or 50% rating Mm. from the audience score. Um, I think that's a kind of like pointed response to that film. Yeah. (laughs) From from the audience perspective. Yeah. Because I don't know many people. I know I'm just talking it from my life, but I don't know many people that enjoyed this film. It felt like it leveled the playing field somewhat. You had Last Jedi supporters and then haters 
And then I think people seem to be kind of more united on this film in their kind of indifference rather than anything else. Yeah. I don't really quite understand that percentage for the audience score. It feels like it's more related to Last Jedi than this film, actually. It just feels like it's more of a follow-on from that. I would say that the IMDb score is more appropriate for this film, considering it's a Star Wars film, which normally do get higher ratings than I think the qualities of, of all of the films should. But it actually is scored quite low for a Star Wars film, which is 6.6 out of 10, which puts it to the bottom of the series, in fact. I think if it was any other normal film, it would have been much lower, though. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so they're the stats and facts in regards to this film as well. But I guess the final thoughts. My question for you is, what is next? And that's all we have time for (laughs) on this week's episode. (laughs) No, sorry. I don't know, really. I feel like they've run it into the ground. Is there any particular story or any particular aspect of the universe that you would like to see them explore? Or is it just simply a matter of they need to let this go for a while? It needs to hibernate until creativity can flourish once more. Yeah, I don't know. My my mind is so um, clouded by just what they've done in the last sort of five years that I can't see a... um, a way through not with all these people in charge anyway i think it needs to be a completely different set of people that are making decisions i mean to be honest i mean i'm still very unsure as to why certain people are still in their jobs to be honest i feel there needs to be some sort of new broom before anything positive can happen i think i mean i'm a very i was a very strong at one point supporter of kathleen kennedy i like the movies that she's made in the past as well her with the spielberg collaborations and i thought that she always came across well in interviews as well but recently as in, in regards to her star wars discussions i can't think of someone that's come across worse or done more damage to the their reputation as well with these films even re- very recently she's been constantly and consistently asked about like when are you going to introduce more diverse voices and more female voices into this very expansive universe and from the point of view of a of a woman that has a certain degree of power within the industry her answers have always been incredibly diplomatic and always been promising more to come down the line but that's never materialized. Even very recently when asked about, are you going to introduce more female voices into the Star Wars series? Her answer was, oh, well, we had our eyes on uh, Nia Costa, who's recently made the Candyman film, but she's just been hired to do a Marvel film. She's like, oh, it's quite sad when she got picked up to do a Marvel film because we had our eyes on her. It's like, that isn't your only single option for Mm. a female voice. As as a woman yourself, you should know that you make up 50% of the population. And I feel like her answers have always been like promises of more creativity, of more voices to be involved in these uh, these franchises. And that's never come to pass. And I think that's damaged her reputation as well, mm. in my opinion. I think she's become something of a studio mouthpiece now. Yeah, I think just because some of the films have just not been as well received as they thought they were going to be, that like she's kind of retreated behind the wall, I think. Yeah. Because I, I imagine going into into this i mean he thought that a a star wars film would actually flop quite significantly yeah with the relationship with the fans and i say that in inverted commas (laughs) and the studio and their lack of ideas i just feel like we're going round and round in circles yeah because i feel if they try anything new the fans are going to be upset and then if they Mm -hmm. try something like the fans want they don't like it either and it's like yeah damned if you do damned if you don't and i just feel like it's like some sort of like poison chalice now I think the only option is to do something radically divorced from the main uh, mythology. 
that's the only way is to give your space to do something that doesn't impact on the immediate law that everybody kind of like has an emotional connection to and forge your own new thing within this universe mm. that has to be the way forward because that'll give you the space to also because i absolutely accept that sometimes when it comes to these things you have to make mistakes in order to do the right thing as well and like nothing's always perfect within these universes but i think to give yourself the space the breathing space to make the odd mistake here and there as well and the only way you can do that is by doing something completely different within the universe in my opinion yeah it all seems to be moving into tv as well at the moment like with the streaming service like they announced as well that the obi-wan series is actually going to be rather than a limited six episode series it's going to be a four episode series which the response to that came well, why not make a fucking film? <laughs> I feel like they're, they're saying that actually, because we've had some degree of success with The Mandalorian and they're pushing so hard for Disney Plus to, to flourish, to mm. work, because it's so limited in terms of what's available on there. Yeah, like, yeah. I think they're actually funneling some of their film properties just onto it. Yeah. And, like expanding it in a minor sense. Yeah. I don't know. I just think it's just the way that it's... The, the Disney's model and... And the way they've handled things before now, I'm I'm just not optimistic or particularly interested. <laughs> what a way, what a place to end our Star Wars discussion, really. It's just a once more hammering home the complete apathy that, yeah. you feel, that we feel towards the series now. Thank you, Disney. Yeah. This will go hand in hand with our Disney Disney remakes episode that we did not too long ago. Yeah. And going back to the start of the episode in part one. I just look at my signed book by Kenny Baker of my Star Wars action figure guide and I just go like, how did we get here? Yeah. <laughs> Stroke in the book. How did we get here, Kenny? I mean, Kenny's gone. And to be honest, I think... Um, and those are big shoes to fill. Yeah. I mean, well... <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's just like, what? <laughs> Seriously, yeah. what's happened? Yeah, it's a far cry from where it needs to be. And I think it's got a lot to do to win over both old fans and new fans. Because I, I like I speak to my my cousin is um fifteen years old and she's not interested in Star Wars. Because no. these films haven't done anything for her. No. And I think with the drop off in terms of uh, the box office as well, in terms of films like Solo flopping massively as well, mm. they've not got the audience that they think they had for this series. No. So it, it can't always forever just coast on the name. It has to be doing something with the films that's going to capture audiences. And I think they have to start off from scratch a bit. And that might work in their favor. But from where I'm standing now, I'm not interested anymore. They're going to have to do a lot to win me over again. Mm. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> that's been our Star Wars special, as special as it's been. Yeah. It's always special to hang out with you, Andy, to spend some quality film time discussing mm -hmm. uh, our favorite series. <laughs> but, um, okay. So, um, I guess to set up what our next episode is going to be, uh, you might detect a theme as well with this next episode. It's going to be another best forgotten movies lost episode and that's right i know a few of you have asked us to release this episode as well and have asked when it's going to be released but it will be the matrix sequels episode so again it'll be a, a nice blast from the past for our listeners but also a uh, a welcome break for us too as well yeah and uh, i just had a thought about this the other day this is the final 
unreleased Best Forgotten Movies episode, and I was kind of a little sad. I was like, this is going to be the last time we hear the Best Forgotten Movies theme tune. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think so... we're, we're going to have to come up with some reason to bring it back. Yeah. Maybe a yeah. retro episode or something like Wee. that. <laughs> <laughs> But thank you for listening and for enduring these uh this the Rise of Skywalker special with ourselves. Yeah. Um I've been Gareth. And I've been Sheev Palpatine. <laughs> Sheev <laughs> Raphael. <laughs> Sheev Palpatine. It's all porn, isn't it? What the fuck are they doing? Sheev Palpatine. <laughs> oh dear. I'm gonna have to look at some of this Palpatine porn. I'm I'm gonna have to. It's uh, it's it's just Yeah. I'm gonna make sure I end this Zoom call a couple of minutes early, actually. <laughs> Just in case. <laughs> Thank you for listening.